Well, today we discuss the book of Joshua, and as always, there are real challenges. And as I'll discuss, there are two very different ways we could go with this book. And because of time, I've decided to go with what we'll call the the low road approach here. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Remember last time, or a a couple of Bible studies ago, we kind of mentioned the humorous beginning of Joshua 1, whereas now Moses is no longer in charge, Joshua is in charge. And the people said to Joshua, we will do everything you have told us and we'll go anywhere you send us. We will obey you just as we always obeyed Moses. And the whole story up to this point is rebellion, 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 challenges to Moses' authority. And so the people reassured Joshua, don't worry, uh, we'll be with you just like we were with Moses. And the book ends, the very famous prayer of Joshua His final sermon, listen to how the book ends. Now then, Joshua continued, honor the Lord and serve him sincerely and faithfully. Get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship. Now, if he's telling them to get rid of the gods, wouldn't that imply that they still have them? Get rid of the gods which your ancestors used to worship in Mesopotamia and in Egypt and serve only the Lord. If you are not willing to serve him, decide today who you will serve. Uh, the, the message here implies, the words imply to me, things were not just fine and dandy here coming to the end of the book of Joshua. And of course, he ends with the famous words, as for my family and me, we will serve the Lord. And the people replied again very confidently, we would never leave the Lord to serve other gods. Okay, we turn over to the next book of Judges, chapter 2. The Lord's servant Joshua, son of Nun, died at the age of 110. He was buried That whole generation also died, and the next generation forgot the Lord and what he had done for Israel. So things collapsed, and Judges, as we'll discuss last time, is a very, very uh, sad and depressing book. But anyway, we're here in uh, Joshua. Now, here's what I mean by the high road and the low road approach. We could take the high road approach, which would be this. We could read uh, verses like this, uh, words of encouragement to Joshua. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, this is God talking, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. And so the high road approach would be God will be with you through medical school. Be strong and courageous. And we should go with that. I mean, we want to look for all these positives like this in the book of Joshua And there are lots of other positives. We could talk about Rahab, a prostitute, heathen, Canaanite prostitute, who, um, you remember, rescued those spies. (coughs) Excuse me. And she's honored in the book of Hebrews as a woman of great faith. Okay, that's encouraging. We could talk about um, Caleb here. Not my Caleb who's in the back of the room, but we could talk about Caleb who um, made it through the wandering in the wilderness and... uh, the remarkable things that he did with great courage. And we could be very optimistic and you be like Caleb through medical school and the rest of your career. So there are positive things to talk about. Um, But in the long run, for me, what is most troubling about these books, and I feel like what is, um, can sometimes undermine our trust, our faith, confidence in God, is the brutality, the killings and in many cases at the command of God. And so I want to discuss this and try to reconcile the brutality in this book 
with what was revealed about God by Jesus Christ. So here, gentle Jesus and his violent Bible. Here's the dilemma that we have to deal with. And I won't spend a lot of time on this story because I want to deal in this whole Bible study just with the issue of fighting as a whole. But just very briefly, the story of Achan, one of many troubling stories in this book. The people of Israel proved to be disloyal about the things claimed by the Lord. Achan, a member of the tribe of Judah, took something that had been claimed by the Lord. So the Lord became angry. Uh, We spent a long time talking about God's anger. What is God's anger in Deuteronomy? But the Lord became angry with the people of Israel. And you remember the story how uh, they drew lots and we go from one tribe and it gets closer and closer and closer. And imagine you're Achan and you see everything just coming closer and closer to you. He must have really been uh, shaking in his boots there. But it finally came down to Achan. And then the horrible thing about what happened. So Joshua sent some men who ran to the tent and found that the condemned things really were buried there with the silver at the bottom. They brought them out of the tent, took them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and laid them down in the presence of the Lord. Joshua, along with all the people of Israel, seized Achan, the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, together with Achan's sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and everything else he owned, and they took them to Trouble Valley. And Joshua said, Why have you brought such trouble on us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you. All the people then stoned Achan to death. They also stoned and burned his family and possessions. They put a huge pile of stones over him, which is there to this day. That is why that place is still called Trouble Valley. And then the Lord was no longer angry. Okay, now maybe we could have a discussion here about uh, why to Achan, but, you know, to his children, pets. I mean, why the everything would have to be stoned and burned. I mean, and there are commands, of course, in the Old Testament to stone Sabbath breakers and all kinds of things. So we are again struggling to deal with this very brutal time. What happened? Well, back to Joshua 1, I find this kind of uh, perhaps insightful. The people, after telling Joshua, don't worry, we'll obey you just as we always obeyed Moses, then went on to tell Joshua this. And this was their conception of justice at that time. Whoever questions your authority or disobeys any of your orders <coughs> excuse me, will be put to death. Now, what do you think about that, um, that model of things? Anyone questions you, Joshua, they should be put to death. That was their ideal of justice. Now, the problem here, of course, is this, they've kind of set the bar. This is their, their vision for justice. And now the people have disobeyed God, right? Who told them, when you take Jericho, please don't take the gold and all the things. And so Achan disobeyed God. And it's kind of like, um, I don't know how many of you heard the story, but about a year and a half ago in Iraq, um, there was a grocer and his family killed and the grocery store was burned down. And the reason was because this grocer um, had the audacity to put celery sticks next to tomatoes. And that was seen as, uh, could be interpreted as uh, an erect male. And so um, because of this, uh, there was apparently some rule or fatwa or something about this. And uh, so he was killed and everyone there, the store was burned down. Now just imagine here, now you're being assigned, you're going to be president of uh, Iraq or whatever. And let's just say you want to make a rule about uh, something like drunk driving. 
And uh, so you think in terms of our Western civilization, and uh, we really want to make a big deal of this, right? That's not good. So maybe a $500 fine, seven days in jail. Okay, now in the people's mind, celery sticks next to tomatoes, that's bad. You get the death penalty for that. Drunk driving, not so bad, right? You get a little fine, a couple days in jail. And you see here, God is trying to work with the people who have a certain understanding of things that is really not at all uh, anywhere close to the ideal. So how does he reach people who have a conception of justice like this? Well, it would appear that God has stooped to meet a people who are, again, far, far away from the ideal. The other uh, aspect in here, just briefly, (coughs) is uh, the corporate aspect of justice. Their understanding would be, it wouldn't make any sense just to punish Achan. The whole family is tied together with this. Achan's punished, his whole family should be punished. That was their conception of justice. We could spend a lot more time talking about um, Achan. Uh, This is a picture here a year and a half ago or so of my boys who like to fight it out a little bit so they get all dressed up with um, all kinds of stuff so that they could have these little battles, which boys like to do. But there's nothing cute about the fighting here in Joshua and Judges. Nothing cute about it at all. And let me just give you, we could give lots of examples, a couple samplings of the fighting that went on in this book. The Lord said to Joshua, take all the soldiers with you and go up to Ai. Don't be afraid or discouraged. I will give you victory over the king of Ai. His people, city, and land will be yours. The Israelites in the city now came down to join the battle. So the men of Ai found themselves completely surrounded by Israelites, and they were all killed. No one got away, and no one lived through it except the king of Ai. He was captured and taken to Joshua. The Israelites killed every one of the enemy <coughs> I'm sorry, in the barren country where they had chased them. Then they went back to Ai and killed everyone there. Joshua kept his spear pointed at Ai and did not put it down until every person there had been killed. The whole population of Ai was killed that day, 12,000 men and women. The Israelites kept for themselves the livestock and goods captured in the city, as the Lord had told Joshua. Joshua burned Ai and left it in ruins. It is still like that today. He hanged the king of Ai from a tree and left his body there until evening. At sundown, Joshua gave orders for the body to be removed, and it was thrown down at the entrance to the city gate. They covered it with a huge pile of stones, which is still there today. Um, That's, uh, I mean, that's, okay, yeah, they were victorious. So should we praise the Lord, or should we feel sad about uh, what we just read? Uh, Let's give a few more examples. The Lord made the Amorites panic at the sight of Israel's army. This is just a few chapters later. Later. The Israelites slaughtered them at Gibeon and pursued them <coughs> down the mountain path at Beshoran, keeping up the attack as far south as Azekah and Makkedah. While the Amorites were running down the pass from the Israelite army, the Lord made large hailstones fall down on them all the way to Azekah. More were killed by the hailstones than by the Israelites. On the day that the Lord gave the men of Israel victory over the Amorites, Joshua spoke to the Lord. In the presence of the Israelites, he said, Son, stand over Gibeon. Moon, stop over Agilon Valley. And the sun stood still and the moon did not move until the nation had conquered its enemies. This is written in the book of Jashar. Don't you wish we had that book? And the sun stood still in the middle of the sky and did not go down for a whole day. So again, God apparently here performed a miracle, kept the sun up a little longer so that a little more killing could take place. 
And there's so many of these through the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, Samuel said to Saul, go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Don't leave a thing. Kill all the men, women, children, and babies, the cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. And do you think this would have a negative effect here? You're a man here and the soldier and you have to go. You're not only fighting the other men, but then you have to go in. And uh, what would it be like to poke a spear through a baby? I mean, uh, terrible. Why do we have all this fighting in here? And of course, we come to Jesus who said, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's the model all the way through in these early books of the Old Testament. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. You've heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your father in heaven. Notice, what's the criteria for becoming a child of your father in heaven? We love our enemies. So Christians, again, Jesus Christ is everything to us. He's the center of all truth. And so we live in the but now time. We do not live in the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth time. So the question is, why was there ever a time for eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? And Paul would say, instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. And as I understand it, to heap burning coals of fire on someone's head, it's to bring them to conviction. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So why, why didn't they go into the land of Canaan and conquer evil by returning good for evil? Gandhi was really right. An eye for an eye does make the world blind. Okay, but uh, how, how do we reconcile this? Well, I want to make several points here uh, in trying to understand the brutality and the fighting in the Old Testament. The first is to discuss the Canaanite nation and their religion a little bit. <coughs> Remember the words to Abraham. God said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And very much the entering into Canaan had to do with the evil in that land climaxing at that time. Okay, just as the uh, prophecy here was completely fulfilled right on time, the people entered the land of Canaan. And remember we read in Deuteronomy that they were entering in not because they were finally ready, but because the people in the land of Canaan were ready. But uh, In Deuteronomy 9, but when God pushes them out ahead of you, don't start thinking to yourselves, it's because of all the good things I've done that God has brought me in to possess these nations. Actually, it's because of all the evil these nations have done. No, it's nothing good that you've done, no record of decency that you've built up, that you've got here. It's because of the vile wickedness of these nations that God, your God, is dispossessing them. So as I understand it, the what was going on in this land eventually would have spread over and potentially pre-flood state again where no one had a true knowledge of God. It was that bad in Canaan at this time. What were they doing? Well, we get some clues here, putting the different passages together in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 20, the words were to completely destroy all these people, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord had ordered you to do. Kill them so that they will not make you sin against the Lord by teaching you to do all the disgusting things that they do in the worship of their gods. So what were the disgusting things that they were doing in the worship of their gods? In Leviticus 18, 
we read, no man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. That perversion makes you ritually unclean. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these acts, for that is how the pagans made themselves unclean. Notice, those pagans who lived in the land before you and whom the Lord is driving out so that you can go in. So we can say that's at least one thing that was going on. Their actions made the land unclean, and so the Lord is punishing the land and making it reject the people who lived there. They did all these disgusting things and made the land unclean, but you must not do them. What else were they doing? (coughs) In Leviticus 20, if any of you give one of your children to Moloch and make my sacred tent unclean and disgrace my holy name, I will turn against you and will no longer consider you my people. And what we know about Moloch here, the god of the Amorites, was this was the god they would heat up his fiery hot hands and they'd place the babies in there. Okay, child sacrifice was uh, very prominent among these people. So what's known about uh, through uh, historical records of the Canaanite religion, very crude, debased form of ritual polytheism. And El, here the God, isn't that interesting? Uh, El Shaddai, the, the overlap here. But El had three wives who were also his sisters and who could readily step down from his eminence and become the hero of sordid escapades and crimes. Philo portrays El as a bloody tyrant whose acts terrified all the other gods and who dethroned his own father, murdered his favorite son, and decapitated his own daughter. Baal was the son of El. And what we know about him, as the river of rain and all fertility, he figures prominently in Canaanite mythology in his struggle with Mot, death, the god of drought and adversity. In his grapple with Mot, he is slain. As a consequence, a seven-year cycle of scarcity ensues. Thereupon, the goddess Anath, the sister and lover of Baal, Alion goes in search of him, recovers his body, and slays his enemy, Mot. Baal is then brought back to life and placed on Mot's throne. And then we have these sacred prostitutes. Um, and um, as apparently, this, this really pointed to uh, sexuality, but more of the, uh, the lustful side of sexuality and more, but more the brutality of war, and there was laughter and enjoyment, even in the face of the worst cruelty. So sacred prostitution, fertility cult worship, temple prostitutes, and the idea here was that the fertility of the soil was very much linked with the fertility of the gods, which is why the temple prostitution and all of that happened right in the temple itself. And uh, if you recall, we talked about you know, why the, the tabernacle in the wilderness? You look at how they were dressed. So, you know, it had to go down, uh, you know, so that nothing would show. Um, and it was really to be a, a stark contrast to the worship of this time. Extreme cruelty and violence, child and human sacrifice, snake worship. This is the land that they were entering in. Now, what's really sad here is as you read through the Old Testament, were the Israelites tempted by this form of worship? Again and again and again, they were going over to this form of worship. So what would that say about the Israelites if they are continually wanting, desiring to do the kinds of things that we just described? Uh, That would say something about them, would it not? And so God here apparently is trying to reach people who are desirous of this form of uh, brutality. The strong words in Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God places these people in your power and you defeat them, you must put them all to death. And we wonder why. 
Do not make an alliance with them or show them any mercy. Do not marry any of them and do not let your children marry any of them because then they would lead your children away from the Lord to worship other gods. Destroy every nation that the Lord your God places in your power and do not show them any mercy. Do not worship their gods for that would be fatal. You see, God here sees these people, the Canaanites, and what they were doing And he realizes this is going to be fatal if my people mix in in any way with these people. And it's repeated again in Deuteronomy 12. (coughs) After the Lord destroyed those nations, make sure that you don't follow their religious practices because that would be fatal. Don't try to find out how they worship their gods so that you can worship in the same way. Do not worship the Lord your God in the way they worship their gods. For in the worship of their gods, they do all the disgusting things that the Lord hates. They even sacrifice their children in the fires on the altars. The key thing here, it would be fatal. And all the way through, they were tempted. They were tempted to go this other way. And it's just as amazing. Solomon, wisest man that ever lived, his outcome here. He married them, foreign women, even though the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with these people because they would cause the Israelites to give their loyalty to other gods, other cruel gods. By the time he was old, they had led him into the worship of foreign gods. And on the mountain east of Jerusalem, he built a place to worship Shemash, the disgusting god of Moab, and a place to worship Moloch. Solomon worshipped Moloch, the disgusting god of Ammon. And we wonder why everything collapsed. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, notice who's his mother. His mother was Naaman from Ammon. His mother was an Ammonite. Now, do you think, uh, who do you spend more time in child rearing of Rehoboam? Solomon or uh, Naaman? And we wonder why did Rehoboam make such bad choices here? He's being raised by a totally different culture that has a totally different uh, slant on things than, uh, than God's, what God had been trying to tell the people. So it really was fatal to intermix in any way. And we read on a few kings later in Israel. uh, This king falls off the balcony. And um, what's his response? He sent some messengers to consult God. No, Beelzebub, the god of the Philistine city of Ekron, in order to find out whether or not he would recover. So the whole Old Testament is the story of the people just going after foreign gods the whole time. And the point is how bad they were, how cruel they were. And in Judges 2... Uh, Right after God says, the the whole next generation forgot Joshua, and it concludes with, you will be trapped by the worship of their gods. And they were. And that's why Judges is such a dark and disturbing book. So that's the first point, which is about the Canaanites, their God, and the fatality of intermixing in any way. Um, The second point is, uh, I believe God did not want them to fight at all. And in so many places, God told them, look, I'll take care of it. In Deuteronomy 3, don't be afraid of them, for the Lord your God will fight for you. And in Exodus, I will send an angel ahead of you to protect you as you travel and to bring you to the place which I've prepared. And again in Exodus, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I will cut them off. And we even read here in this passage in Deuteronomy 7 that God would send hornets ahead of them. Okay, but the people really didn't trust God to do this. They wanted to fight 
And so God helped them fight. In Joshua 24, as you advanced, I, God, threw them into panic in order to drive out the two Amorite kings. Your swords and bows has, had nothing to do with it. And so I think, really, if they would trust God, just the beginning, he would have taken care of it. And we know in so many cases, God did take care of it. This is a story much later on, King Hezekiah, the whole city is surrounded uh, by uh, the enemy. And Hezekiah, under a circumstance that would seem hopeless, said, be determined and confident and don't be afraid of the Assyrian emperor or of the army he's leading. We have more power on our side than he has on his. He has human power, but we have the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And then we read on, that night an angel of the Lord went to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 soldiers. Now, the other difficulty thing here is just God doing that in the first place, but God would have taken care of them if they'd put their complete trust in him. He didn't want them to be the ones going around poking spears in people. And uh, maybe another uh, clue in this area. We might uh, read over a verse like this and kind of miss the meaning here, but... Uh, after conquering a city, we read that Joshua crippled their horses and burned their chariots and crippled the horses. Uh, why would he do that? And I think here the meaning is God did not want them to become a superpower, to have all these horses, all these chariots. He wanted them to trust in him. And this was a step in that direction. Don't go after their horses. Don't go after their chariots. And remember the words in Deuteronomy, which Solomon should have read, uh, don't have a large army, don't have many wives, don't go to Egypt to buy horses, don't build a superpower, just trust in me and I'll take care of you. So that's the second point. The third point is we have to say God didn't like the fighting. And I like the fact that David here, man after God's own heart, look at all the fighting that David did. Um, but then David wants to build a temple and you'd think uh, God would be thrilled. Nathan the prophet says, man, two thumbs up, great idea, which uh, gives us uh, some idea about prophets. They can make uh, mistakes once in a while, apparently. I had to come back later and say, actually, bad idea. All right, but notice God said to David, or David said after talking with God, he's forbidden me to do it because I am a soldier and have shed too much blood. And I think God just had to somehow... Get it into the record books here. Look, David, you've been a great friend of mine, but because of all the brutality, uh, I'm not going to let you build this temple. I have to somehow put it into the record. I don't approve of all this fighting and killing. And I like this verse in Psalms. Come and see what the Lord has done. See what amazing things he's done on earth. He stops wars all over the world. He breaks bows, destroys spears, and sets shields on fire. Stop fighting, he says, and know that I am God, supreme among the nations, supreme over the world. Okay, we could draw this out a lot more, but I think God was disgusted by all of the fighting. Now, the other term that I uh, have found helpful in this is God, the patient missionary. Now, just imagine you're a missionary and you're going off to, uh, oh, I don't know what part of the world would be uh, very primitive, but some tribe or something where polygamy and all kinds of things are going on. And would you on day one say, okay, look, we've got to uh, stop having all the wives. Just get rid of them. You're only allowed one. And uh, no more pork. You'll have tofu from now on. And we go through and we make a list. We totally reform. We get people exactly the way 
we think is the ideal. Is that the way you work? Don't you have to very, very gradually bring someone out of the culture that they've been so uh, enmeshed in? And so we go through the Bible here and we have things like polygamy and we wonder, why didn't God, man, first thing, deal with this, you can't do this. But read this verse in Exodus 21. God said, if a man who has, who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. Does this mean that God approves of polygamy? No, he made provision. He didn't like polygamy, but he made provision for a more humane way and eventually to lead them out of that practice. It would have been too much, I think, for God just to come down on all of these things immediately, just lead them out of this. And it is in there, of course. The king shall not have many wives. He didn't approve of that. We talked a few weeks ago about divorce laws. Remember the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, see, God approves of divorce. Read it right here in the Old Testament. And remember Jesus' response was, that was a concession to your hard-heartedness. It was a concession. God doesn't like divorce, but if you're going to divorce, do it in a humane way. Let me give you a few rules so that you do it in a humane way. Violence. Eye for an eye. And remember the words here in Joshua, this was their conception of justice. God dealt with them at that level. But many times through the Old Testament, uh, it is very clear that God did not approve of these methods. And even in Ezekiel, we read where God says, I gave them bad rules for a time. Private vengeance. In this time, if, if it was a mistake, you were chopping wood or something and the axe flew out of your hand and you accidentally killed someone, um, it was expected that the family members of that person who was killed would hunt you down and kill you. That's just expected. That's the norm. It was an accident, but it doesn't matter. And this is why we have things like cities of refuge. Okay, it's again God saying this whole thing is not anywhere close to the ideal. Let me give you something halfway, a city of refuge. And you could run to this city, stay there until the high priest died, and then you could safely leave the city. It's again God meeting the people, I would say, more than halfway. So as I see it here, we have God starting out with slaves in Egypt, in Egypt accustomed to brutality, and all kinds of things. He meets them there. We have an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth language. We have cities of refuge. We have things to let's, let's bring you a little closer, a little closer. And even in places like Zechariah, it is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And then, of course, we come to the full light of Jesus Christ, who told us that's not the way at all. What's the danger? Well, the danger is that we read these stories in the Old Testament and we take on a crusader mentality. God is on our side. He's on the side of our tribe fighting our enemies. And the words of Jerry Falwell here several years ago who said, but you've got to kill the terrorists before the killing stops. And I'm for the president to chase them all over the world. If it takes 10 years, blow them all away in the name of the Lord. And in the name of the Lord... Did Jesus Christ ever command us to take on arms and to fight and kill our enemies? And we're going to put a military campaign in the name of the Lord. Uh, well, again, we're back to this very tribal kind of mentality, crusader mentality. God is on our side. He likes us. He hates those other people. 
And remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight. My kingdom is not of this world. We are to be citizens of the kingdom that is not of this world. And the kingdom that is not of this world is not a kingdom that conquers and kills our enemies. We just read, our kingdom is the one where we pray for our enemies. We wish the best for our enemies. We do good to our enemies. That is to be a Christian. These are very difficult words. How do you put these into practice? If one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Now, let's see. Let's put this into a real-world kind of a setting here. Maybe you get into the wards, and you have, um, oh, I don't know, you have a fourth-year medical student or an intern over you who is uh, unfairly giving you things to do that uh, you shouldn't have to do, giving you extra work. It's really not your responsibility. Well, what would it be like if you said, okay, I'm just going to go the extra mile. I'm just going to return good for evil. And that is, again, heaping burning coals of fire on the other person. That is returning good for evil. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. And um, boy, do we love our enemies. Uh, What we tend to do is, you remember, uh, Jesus was talking about, you know, love your neighbor. And the man came up and said, well, who is my neighbor? Right? We want to exclude all kinds of people as being our neighbor or as being our enemy. Who is our enemy? And we get into a theoretical discussion about, well, they're not, uh, Jesus doesn't mean really bad enemies when he says love your enemies, not the really bad ones. And then uh, it kind of becomes negated altogether. If anyone hits you on one cheek, let him hit the other one too. If someone takes your coat, let him have your shirt as well. Is this foolishness? It certainly is by kingdom of the world standards. But again, apparently this is the kingdom of God. Give to everyone who asks you for something. And when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. These are very difficult things for us to follow. Do for others just what you want them to do for you. Love your enemies and do good to them. Lend and expect nothing back. Is this anything like what we just read here in the book of Joshua? Do not judge others. Do we judge others? Do not condemn others. Do we condemn others in our mind? Forgive others. And um, this would be, I think, especially difficult if we just had Jesus giving a sermon and then he just went back up to heaven. But of course, we have the ultimate revelation. Jesus dying on a cross, did he love his enemies? Did he do good to those people who tortured him to death? Did he bless them? Did he pray for them? Did he forgive them? So we have not just in words, but we have Jesus ultimately showing us this is what it means to be a Christian. And to be a Christian, I think, is ultimately to reflect this kind of radical love to the world. And uh, I don't know that that's ever happened uh, other than in small individuals here or there, but what would it be like if Christianity as a whole reflected the face of Jesus Christ dying on Calvary? I think that would be spectacular. Now, how do we get to Jonah? Um, This is how I want to tie this all together here. You remember Jonah was asked to go off and give a message to Nineveh, right? Capital of Assyria. And Assyria, this is kind of the equivalent of the terrorists of the day. These were the enemies. The Assyrians were about to conquer the nation of Israel. They were brutal, cruel, all the things we just said about the Canaanites, 
uh, okay, just transfer that over to the Assyrians in, in various ways. And so God sends a prophet to the Assyrians. And why did Jonah run away? Why are you sending me there? I mean, it would be like God in a vision, I think, almost coming to you and saying, look, I know where Osama bin Laden is. I'd like you to go and give him a message. And would you go? And notice, Jonah goes up on the hill. He's hoping God's going to burn it down, that wicked city. But Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this is what would happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. Okay? So difficult. Again, do good to your enemies. Man, he wanted them to burn. And uh, that's why Jonah was so upset. That's why he ran away. He knew God was so good and that God would win uh, these people over. And I, I thought a long time about whether I should show this next picture to you because I, I realize there's a fairly high chance that this will be offensive to some of you, but I'm going to show it anyway. So, um, this picture here um, shows Jesus taking off his outer garment and washing the feet of various world leaders. Angela Merkel, Tony Blair, Kofi Annan, there's Osama bin Laden, George Bush, uh, Prime Minister of India and President of China. And this is a a challenging picture, but I think it it challenges us very much in how do we look at our enemies. Are we trying to conquer the world through the power of the sword or the power of the towel? What is the Christian way of dealing with evil? And uh, we might wonder, well, would Jesus really do this? But of course, you know, what did we read in John? Having all power. And in the the face of his disciples who are arguing about who's going to be first, Judas had already betrayed him. Judas was his enemy, and Jesus washed his feet. And then, of course, I mean, Jesus on the cross forgave those who tortured him to death, people who tortured him to death. Are we saying that Osama bin Laden is worse than people who tortured Jesus to death and drove nails through his hands and feet? Jesus forgave those who tortured him to death. So I think, again, the Christian response to evil is to respond with love, service, goodness, that that is the light that needs to sweep throughout the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that we would be more like you, more like Christ. Help us to to organize together, to come together and face the world, not with the power of the sword, but with the power of the towel, love and service, and to treat people as Christ treated people. Amen.